0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: You heard this late yesterday. You heard this report come out. You heard the news that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, had banned Russia. Not Russian athletes per se. Russian athletes can still, as individuals, show up at the Pyeongchang Olympics in February. They're still okay to do that, but there will be no Russian flag, no Russian banner, no Russian name, no Russian anthem. Anybody who wins a medal will not be listed as Russia. Russia's medal standings will say officially zero, this is, um, I think this is unprecedented. As far as I know, this is unprecedented. And frankly, I'm a little surprised this has happened, all things considered. But a man who can speak to this far better than I, far better than really anybody, Bob Barney, is the founder of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University, one of the experts on the Olympics in this whole world. Uh, He joins us. Now, Bob, thanks for doing this today.
0: Well, you're certainly welcome, Scott.
1: You have heard, I'm sure you've heard, I'm sure a lot of people have heard an awful lot said about this over the last couple of days. And before we really dive into it, though, are you surprised that the IOC showed this level of strength or this level of whatever to actually say to Russia, not welcome?
0: Well, I'm mildly surprised, but uh, very pleased by their assertive statement. There's no doubt about that. I think, given the record of IOC presidents in the past, especially the European presidents, certainly not Avery Brundage, but the IOC presidents have usually sought a conciliatory path, a compromise path, and uh, but this this administration didn't on this issue, and neither should they have. So I'm 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 pleasantly surprised, and I applaud it.
1: The fact that they did this yesterday, uh, they have had the... Now, the McLaren report was done by a Canadian. It, out, it laid out all the allegations against the state-sponsored doping by Russia. They've had that for months. The movie Icarus, which really did a spectacular job at pointing this out as well, it's been out for months. Why now for the move? Any idea why they would do it now as opposed to four, five, six months ago?
0: That's a good, that's a good point and a good question. The... Not only have they had uh, this—they've had this information, the Russians have had this information, so have the IOC in terms of the tip of the iceberg since the uh, period right after the Sochi Games, and the Pound, McLaren, and the German Representative Commission, and then the McLaren follow-up, and now the Schmidt Commission, uh, the the former Swiss president. why they left it to this uh, at this point, I'm not sure. I think the debate went on in the halls of decision making, and was on for quite some time as to how this how this was going to play out. And I think it took a lot of a lot of back and forth conversations and deliberations before this staunch uh, position uh, was arrived at.
1: So this was not necessarily, in your mind, necessarily a timing thing of any kind of um, particular reason. It was it just took this long to figure out what to do.
0: I think so. I think so. Because, uh, you know, the statement by Thomas Bach, the uh, current president of the IOC, that, that uh, the, the, the underlying reason for the stance at the IOC at this time is that uh, this whole Russian thing Cast some very negative reflections on the, on the integrity of the Olympic Games, the fairness of it. And, you know, I look at it a little bit further than that. and I, could, I guess I don't know how much of a correlation there is between the word integrity and the word image. But to me, they're fairly close. And, you know, if this casts a reflection on the image of the Olympic Games, uh this has serious implications in terms of the entire financial underpinning of the mm. modern Olympic movement from the point of view of selling the symbol, selling the image, and to co- television networks and to uh, corporate sponsors.
1: You mentioned a second ago, and I want to get to that in a moment, but you mentioned a second ago about the... Um this may not have happened in the past. I can't imagine, and I, you know, maybe I'm being naive. Maybe I'm being unfair to the man, but I can't imagine that in the days of Juan Antonio Samaranch that this kind of ruling would have ever come down. I just, I, it seems as though something is different.
0: Well, I think you're right, Dae. Uh, for one thing, Samaranch had close allies with the Soviets and and, and later the Russians. his uh, former ambassador from Spain to to the Soviet Union. And uh, you know his approach was uh, certainly one of conciliation, negotiation, uh, and uh, seeking of compromise, and, and so on. He this would not have been like uh, like Samaran at all, I don't think. So what is different about Bach? Well, <laughs> for one thing, he was an Olympic athlete. <laughs> Samaran was not. And and he was a lawyer. He's a lawyer. It comes from a law background. Samaras did not. And I think he looked at evidence, evidence, hard evidence, a little bit more than Samaranch did.
1: Well, and you bring up an interesting point. We've got to go to a quick break here. We're going to keep you on here and come back. But Thomas Bach, the fact that he was an Olympic athlete, I really do wonder whether that had an impact, as he, more than Sam Ranch, more than the other people who have been IOC leaders, would understand about cheating and about how that could affect them. Bob, I've had a lot of people in the last few days ask a question that I I think may be a little naive, but I think it's actually a fair question too. And they're saying, why would the Russians have done this? Why was it so important for them to win medals? Why was it so important that they would go this far to try and do well in the olympics and and all i can think of is maybe it was berlin i don't know if that was the first one but the olympics have been as much about a state building and a muscle flexing political exercise in the last decades as it has been a sports event right
0: well it's been that for for a long long time and certainly it would date back to berlin 1936 that's a long time ago but uh, I think, in terms of the Russians, to date, of course, it was always the the Olympics were always premier in the Russian thinking, in terms of of uh, situations during the Cold War with its adversary, the United States, and and wanting to do better than they to showcase their superiority, and society. But. It, it, it really comes down to that uh, to their hosting of the Sochi Games, too, and Mar- uh, to be the root or the tip of the iceberg in this thing, and wanting to do well and to show the world they could not only organize it, but they would be supreme in, in medal gathering, uh, which they were, but uh, slightly more than half of those athletes were co- contaminated. And when this became known and follow-up investigations and examination laid bare the whole thing, it just blew up in the Russians' face. It's a uh, it's a uh, it's a disastrous situation for them. But it's
1: but there's no surprise, I guess, why some country might do something like this. I mean, you would hope they wouldn't. But again, this isn't just about sports.
0: Well, you know, countries are sometimes like athletes and elite athletes. Uh, those that don't have sound scruples and in every way in their approach to their sport. Will leave no stone unturned in terms of uh, uh, pursuing success, and this rubs off on states. And the, the good example, of course, is the uh, the East German Republic. Yes. In the six, in the 70s and the 80s, in particular, and look at look at what they achieved, and and look at what cost as was bared after 1990 when the wall came down. And the record was. Uh, Uh, There for everyone to see.
1: So, what's the difference, though, between the East German team and what they did? What's the difference between that and what the Russians were doing? Or is there any difference?
0: Well, the big difference is that the East Germans got away with it and
1: the Russians didn't. Is that simple? I think so. And, it's, and they didn't... Re, I mean, I suppose they got away with it at the time. In in History would tell us they didn't really get away with it. Nobody looks at those East German teams now and those East German athletes and thinks that they were the glorious victors that we maybe saw once upon a time.
0: Well, you're absolutely right. History will judge it that way. That's for sure.
1: Will this change anything, though? I mean, is this... Because, to my mind... There will always be people who will want to cheat. Maybe there will always be states who will want to cheat. Do you really expect this is going to have the impact? I think the IOC wants it to.
0: Well, you know what? I have a little bit more optimistic uh, feeling about that. This is this is a this is a warning. Uh, this is a statement. This is a precedent, not only to Russia, but to the nations of the world and to the athletes of the world. And with these uh, recriminations and with these sanctions and with these penalties, if they're carried through and they're staunch about uh, seeing that they're carried through, I think it sends uh, the most severe message that's ever been sent yet uh, to date in this whole thing with performance enhancement. So that's a lofty statement to make on my part, I know, but uh, I hope I live long enough to
1: (laughs) see that played out. Well, I hope you're right. Everyone hopes you're right. In this, though, because this has been so humiliating, I think, for a lot of Russian people and Russian athletes and Russian administrators, are you at all surprised that I think today, I think it was today, Vladimir Putin said, yeah, I'm not going to demand a full boycott. If you want to go, if you're clean enough and you can pass the tests, and you're an athlete, knock yourself out. You go. Are you surprised he hasn't been much harder in the in the wake of this?
0: Well, not yet. I think he knows what the evidence is and how it's stacked against him. I think he knows that. I think he fully realizes it. And uh, you know, he's got he's got other problems. He's got a lot, multiple problems <laughs> with the West, with the United States, with the IOC, and so on right now. So uh, I wasn't I wasn't too surprised. In fact, he knows as well as everybody else that all these boycotts in the past have served no purpose whatsoever. They just don't work.
1: Bob, we have one minute left, and you mentioned this, and I wanted to ask you about this because we know the IOC is propped up heavily by tv money especially american tv money i think they're paying the nbc is paying 4.4 billion u.s for the four olympics leading up to 2020 with that in mind if even if the uh, the americans were ever caught in a situation like russia was could you ever imagine that the ioc would do this to the americans and cut off that kind of money
0: well (laughs) the american tv rights now uh
1: they carry well, the games, right? It's
0: about 50% of the world's rights, uh, or half. Yeah. And the other half of all the different rights sent to different, sold to different television networks uh, the world around. So, and of course, this would come up directly opposed, the IOC would be directly opposed to their main, one of their main financial benefactors. Mm. Uh, so it, you know... I always remember that golden rule when it comes to finance: he who has the gold makes the rule. (laughs) Bob,
1: Bob, we got to go there. Unfortunately, thank I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
0: Well, you're quite welcome, Scott. Good luck to you.
1: Uh, Bob Barney, founder of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. We've been chatting about this Russian ban for the Olympics. You know about it now. Even if you missed the first bit of the show, you've heard about this through the week, through the last couple days anyway. Well, back in August, when the movie Icarus came out on Netflix, which was a scathing indictment and explained what the Russians were doing that has led to this ban, we talked to Jesse Lumsden. You know Jesse, former Hamilton Ticat, now an Olympic bobsledder. And at that time, he was intensely critical of Russian athletes who cheated and the state that helped them. Now, he's in Germany today in a place appropriately named Winterberg. Great place to be if you're a bobsledder in the middle of winter. Uh, But he is also fast asleep now, so we couldn't get him on tonight. But I wanted to bring up a little couple clips of what we talked about with him that day because he's getting ready to go to Pyeongchang. He would have been facing Russian athletes. And I wanted to play this because the people we're talking about ultimately are the athletes. They are not robots. They are human beings who are investing a lot of time and a lot of effort into their sport so first up just to get a little bit of context i asked him back then what i asked him to lay out what a bobsledder not making a lot of money what does a bobsledder do in their typical day to become world class
2: and on monday wednesday friday i'm home by 5 five thirty because it includes um our warm-up our sprint session our in ice house pushing session which is our technical work and then we have a lift after, and then we usually have our cool down and our therapy. Um, the hours that we're putting in right now are, are consistent with any full-time job that's out there. Um, I'm on, I'm currently on a nutrition plan uh, where I'm following certain caloric intake every single day, uh, including my supplements, which are we always have, you know, making sure that we are getting supplements from companies that are reputable and that are branded as... Uh, NSF or third-party tested or batch tested so a lot of supplements out there if you just go into any sort of -of run-of-the-mill supplement store can contain banned substances Um, so we have to be very very careful even with the supplements that we take Uh, and then you know monitoring our sleep and any sort of tool that uh, like working in floating flotation sensory deprivation float tanks on recovery days um, helping with meditation you know, doing everything we possibly can to get every single, you know, edge that we can under the under the rules because our, our our sport comes down to the hundredth of a second.
1: So he's explaining what they do. It's an enormous amount of commitment. It's an enormous amount of work. So what do you get for all that effort? What do you get for doing all that? How much time shaved off? How much impact can they have for all that work? Jesse Lumsden again.
2: So for a perfect example for me as a crewman, it's, it, the push is the most important part of my job. And we get tested in an individual push every year. So let's go back to the 2014 games. In the 2012-13 season, my personal best was uh, 497 second push, four seconds, 97 hundredths over a 50-meter push, Um, we worked over 1,200 hours over the next off-season, and for me to be able to push a 495, so two-hundredths
1: of a second. So you are doing all that work for two-one-hundredths of a second. We are talking, you can't blink in that period of time. And so you can imagine by taking something, by adding something to your body, testosterone, steroids, whatever else, what impact that could have, why the temptation would be there. And multiply, by the way, that two-one-hundredths by... The two guys or the four guys who were in the sled—you can see how that can be impactful. So, finally, I asked him, and this is really the crux of it: Does he believe the guys he was and is racing against are or were dirty? Absolutely, you wonder. You have to wonder with
2: everything that's come out through the McLaren reports, everything that's been proven, everything that's uh, you know been shown on the the, the movie. Of you have to wonder, and you know this is the only time you'll hear me say this. Thank God we didn't finish fourth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because. Uh, You're you Joanne know, Millar start. if you finish fourth in that position. Joanne Millar lived through that. Jo- the swimmer. It, it, with exactly. uh, Michelle De Bruyne, the Irish swimmer who was later found to have doped, not necessarily in those Olympics, but there's lots of suspicions. But Joanne Millar should have an Olympic medal right now.
2: For sure. And it's it's that, you know, Sam Edney came fourth in uh, the Luge event and, you know, he posted that on Twitter. And, and, and that would be just, I can't even describe how that would feel because, you know, you, you, you come forth, you're already so close, but then you find out all this information and how are you supposed to feel but completely, you know, with a, you know, how much faith have you lost in the system or even the Olympic movement or why you're even doing this?
0: Because
2: mm. if your goal is to, you know, stand on the podium representing your country, whether it's winning the medal, whether it's singing the national anthem, Whatever it is, and that's robbed. For, like, how can you feel not just completely robbed it, it, with all the amount, the, the, with the time that athletes put in, and the effort and the sacrifice that goes into this in amateur athletics? We're not walking away with paychecks after every race. This is this is this is a like a this is a passion project. In you know, in not so many words, it's it's a, it's a choice we've made because we're trying to pursue something. At the end of this and um, walking away we're not walking away with you know stacked bank accounts uh, like professional athletes are it's and to have that moment taken away from you possibly because somebody or an, an entire nation went to an unethical route it's it's gut-wrenching
1: I imagine those I imagine that Jesse Lumsden is not the only one though who is steamed about this? I, when Icarus came out, and it's been on Netflix now for what about a week and a half or two weeks? When when you all showed back up at the at training the day after everybody watched it, what was the discussion?
2: It was. Have you seen Icarus? Are you effing kidding me? Okay, I can't talk about this because it's just going to get everybody too fired up. But it's that was the general consensus from everybody, and it's just and then it and then it becomes why isn't anything being done yet? Because again, you're focused on your own training. The McLaren report came out. Okay, we got to, you know, WADA and IOC are going to take care of this. It's going to be, you know, punishment's going to be dealt. They'll, uh, and we can just keep focused and and working. We're working towards the podium right now, so we can't let these distractions just completely consume us. But it, it was again one of those things that it's just your jaws on the floor.
1: In Sochi, the Russian four-man team won the gold medal by 66 one-hundredths of a second. That was over four runs. The two-man team won by nine one-hundredths of a second. Both were ultimately disqualified. You wonder why the athletes are ticked off and happy Russia's not going after what they did. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You know today that um, there was a big day down at Queen's Park because it was the release of the Auditor General's report, last one before the next provincial election. So you know there was going to be all kinds of stuff that was in here that you're going to be hearing about in commercials and debates and who knows what other forums between now and then. And as always is the case, there are some juicy tidbits, there are some head-scratchers, there are some outrages. Well, joining us to try and break this all down... Alan Carter is the Global News anchor, host of Focus Ontario, and he is Global's Queen's Park Bureau chief who had a rather busy day today, but he found time to join us. Alan, thanks for doing this. Oh, Scott, thanks for having me on. Let's. Um, I want to go through some of the highlights or lowlights, whatever you want to call them. I'm not really sure what the proper term is for this. And then in a moment, I'm going to ask you what all this means, because you had a really interesting take on the big picture of this whole report. But let's start with hydro, because... Alan, this is the one I don't get. Of all of the things that is in this report, we know that this wind government has been dogged by problems with the hydro file for years and years and years. And you would think that if that's the area that the brightest spotlight is going to be on, you would make darn sure that of anything, this is the one that is going to be clean as a whistle. And yet, I think number one on the list of things that the Auditor General brought up today was another hydro problem.
3: Yeah, and this one in particular, uh, Scott, has got to do with this system that we have in place, how we manage contracts with the energy suppliers. So there's this complicated system in Ontario where if you have a contract to supply power to the grid, often, you know, you're being paid to, to supply it whether or not we use it because we have to have excess power all the time and all this other extra stuff. So there's this program for cost recovery for, for uh, power companies that may be losing money because of, well, things that aren't their own fault. What the auditor found was that there was $30 million a year per year, $30 million bucks per year, in claims that were not related to operating a power plant. Things like scuba gear or parkas or traps for raccoons <laughs> and all of those things. We end up paying for in some way. Now, now to be fair, the ministry has gone after those that uh, you know that put in the false claims, and some of the money has been claimed and gotten back. But it's about a hundred million bucks now over the last couple of years that we have lost because of these fraudulent claims.
1: And I gotta believe. If again, I don't work for the government, so maybe I just miss something. But if I'm doing the the accounting for hydro, and I see raccoon traps showing up in my claims. I'm wondering what is going on. Maybe maybe they don't list it quite that specifically at first. I don't know.
3: Well, yeah, and, and so here is where it gets a little even more murky. Now, as you have a couple of different, like it's alphabet soup when you talk about the energy. Mm-hmm. You've got the IESO, and you've got the OEB, and So essentially it's the Ontario Energy Board, the Ontario Energy Board, OEB, they oversee, and they're the arm's length regulator for the system. And then you have the IESO with the Independent Energy, whatever, I forget it now, the rest of it. But anyway, that is the company, that is is the agency that's supposed to oversee these receipts and make sure that things are right, and they haven't been doing it. So is it the government itself? It's it's an arm's length away from the Ministry of Energy, but yet it is still an agency of the government that is clearly not overseeing this. And I don't know about you, Scott, but like a chump, I have been paying for my own car washes and capturing my own raccoons <laughs> for
1: the last of years. Yeah, you know, you should know better than that. If you just were a public servant, you could have your raccoons caught for you. Um, yeah. n- next up on the list, and this one, I am, again, I'm really puzzled by this one. She said that one in six government buildings is sitting empty, costing us millions a year. And while that is shocking, that one in six government buildings is sitting empty, when I do the math, and I'm not good at math, but there's (laughs) there's 812 of those, that means you times that, multiply that by six, that means the provincial government owns nearly 5,000 buildings. That is suddenly, to me, seems like an awfully big government. And I know we have that, but man, it really stands out when you put it in those numbers.
3: Well, and I can't confirm your math for you. I don't have the, the, the <laughs> report directly in front of me. I did it and, twice. And I, also, I also work in media, <laughs> so i got to take my shoes and socks off any time we go over the number 10. Um, but here is um, the thing is, is the amount of money that we're just spending on these empty pieces of real estate is ridiculous. Uh, and that's what the auditor says. And I think what the auditor is saying is there needs to be better oversight from Infrastructure Ontario. Of what assets do we have? How much money are we paying to just keep them open and the lights on and nobody in them? And should we start selling them?
1: Yeah, it just—it's such a huge number. I just—I can't even fathom that we somehow the—and and that's like that's provincial government. We also have municipal governments and federal governments. I mean, it, you realize with this one thing to me the scope in some way of the size of government. I know it's just one little snapshot, but boy, that really clarified it for me, Alan. I, I, it does get me wondering: Has there ever been an auditor general's report? When the AG comes back and says, it's all good, go home, nothing to see here. It's never happened, right?
3: Well, no, and, and I, I refer to this time of year as Christmas for critics or Christmas for complainers, because really it is. It's an annual tradition in Ontario. Uh, first or second week of December, the Auditor General, and, and that person changes. It was um, Jim Carter before the current Auditor, and same sort of thing. Big you know, report that looks into a bunch of different things, And, you know, inevitably there's going to be a bunch of stuff that is going to make you mad. It's a question of of how bad is it and just how systemic.
1: So if this is, as you describe, I mean, it's an annual exercise in finding every bit of waste. and, And that's a good thing. We want to find out. We don't want to be throwing our tax dollars away. But if we do this every year and if we essentially get the same results, different specifics, but the same results no matter what party or leader is in power is it really doing anything
3: I, I contrast it with the sunshine list you know what that is yeah right? where they where they put out the list of everybody who makes over a hundred thousand dollars
1: which is everybody the,
3: which is <laughs> and part of the reason that the, the, the liberals they don't want to they don't want to change that is because eventually it's just going to become meaningless right you know in like another 10 15 years it's going to be utterly meaningless and it's less meaningful now i I feel differently about the Auditor General's report because the auditor does look into very specific things and and, and points out problems and then often does a follow-up. So what you could see six, eight months from now, and I know we have an election in six months, so it doesn't apply this next year, but you could, you know, the the auditor will sometimes come back and say, here's a follow-up. Did they do all the things that we said that we would do? And so there is accountability there for the government. Uh, The danger is here, Scott, is that every December with this big thunk of a, um, a door stopper drops, This thing's two volumes, 11, uh, or 1100 pages. And because there's so much in it, it, you know, it's like if you're angry at everything, you're angry at nothing. Mm. So it's difficult to just kind of zero in on something that you say, now this is just truly ridiculous. I think in this particular report, it's got to be the scuba gear in the parkers.
1: Well, sure. But you, you've pointed out, you wrote a piece today. It was a really great piece. People should go look it up. It's online at Global News. There is lots of stuff, but there's nothing so overwhelmingly egregious. That stuff with the parkas and the raccoons and everything, that's great uh, for getting people's attention, and it really is ridiculous. But there's nothing here that is so overwhelming that the governing party is going to be lying in bed staring at the ceiling tonight, I don't think.
3: No, I, 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 you're absolutely right. It's, You know, it's a death by a thousand cuts, a little paper cut. It's like, a, you know, you, people always ask me in these cases, like, what does this mean for next year, for the election? What does it mean anything, really? Because, you know, you, probably it's going to reinforce uh, positions and beliefs that you might already have. If you're someone who, you know, doesn't like the liberals and you, or, you, you know, whatever, you're a PC reporter, supporter or NDP supporter, this is probably music to your ears. It's just playing on what you already believe. If you're on the fence or like most people and you know, who really don't pay a lot of attention to this stuff, it's just kind of out there and it's noise, and people are not going to really buckle down and make a decision until the writ gets dropped. And that's why, Scott, because that's why campaigns are so important. We can talk all we want about polls and how many years the liberals have been in power, but when, it, when the buses start rolling, that's when people start paying attention.
1: But you made another really interesting point in your piece today, and you essentially said the volume of the issues that are here. I mean, this long list of things that Bonnie Lysak found, and the fact that the Liberals and her have had a contentious relationship over how she does some of her accounting. This has been an ongoing, I think maybe spat is too flip a word, but you get the point. Um, Does this kind of, again, with their supporters, does this kind of take a lot of the steam out of what this might be?
3: Well, here's my position on the auditor. This auditor, Bonnie Lysak, is very activist. Um, And as you mentioned, uh, just a quick background on that accounting tussle is that governments in the past, and this government, uh, and many governments, count public sector pensions. So the pensions for all of those government employees, they count those as an asset. They put them on the black side of the ledger. And the auditor is saying, no, no, that shouldn't be. That's not your money. It's not money you can access. It shouldn't count as an asset. That should come off. And so... To do that would mean that the liberals are not in balance, as they say, but rather about $4 billion in the whole. Now, it's an incredibly complicated thing, and I am no accountant. But I do know that there are as many experts on the government side saying, no, this is the way it's always been done, it's the way it should be done, as there are on the auditor's side. And here's something else I know, is that the progressive conservatives just put out a policy platform in which they use the government's accounting method. And there's no indication that Patrick Brown, if he wins power, is going to change that and suddenly decide, no, no, we have $4 billion less than we thought. So the auditor is kind of on the losing end of this accounting battle, and that has taken away the power of her persuasiveness because the ability of her office is to come out and say, this is wrong, it shouldn't be, the government should change, and everybody gets so outraged, and the government's like, well, we can't do that, and they change. But the problem is is that the auditor is looks to be wrong, and I'm not clear on that, I'm not saying she is, but looks to be wrong on such a key fundamental accounting problem that it has taken away her ability to use moral suasion for these other issues.
1: Alan Carter from Global News, really appreciate the time. Go read his piece, because it is worth uh, worth taking your time to do that. It's a really interesting argument. Alan, thanks for the time tonight.
3: Always great to be on. Really appreciate you asking me.
1: It is, uh, you know, the other part of this as we go to a break... The liberals today basically said, hey, to the Auditor General, thanks for your time. We disagree, but thanks for your time. There's nothing to see here. The Conservatives and the NDP, of course, jumping all over this. And who gets upset? You know what? You're upset depending on your point of view, depending on your political position. Or not upset at all. Which takes us kind of back to where we started the day before this even came out. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. What was remarkable to me this week about the tragic shooting death of Yosef al-Haznawi, you know that story, tragic story, was there was a lot of things about it, the response from the community and other things, but specifically how fast one of the suspects in this case was arrested and how quickly the name and photo of another who, as far as we know, is still at large, although police say they are getting close to catching him, how quickly that photo, that identification was released. Now, we have all watched Law & Order, we've all watched CSI, or CSI Miami, or CSI New York, or anyway, you get the point. And we've watched a million cop shows, and we know how it looks when it's on TV, but what about the real world? How do you really solve a murder? If you're a real cop, a real detective, how close is that, and how do you really solve a murder? Well, there's only one way to really find that out, and that is to talk to someone who has done it. Rick Arnold spent many years on the Hamilton Police Service, eventually working his way to become homicide detective here in the city before retiring a few years ago. He joins me now. Rick, thanks for doing this tonight.
4: You're welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me on.
1: Let's, uh, let's go through one of these. Now, it's gonna be, we're going to make one up. We're not going to use any kind of specific real-life scenario because that makes it much more complicated, but we'll just use a made-up scenario here. Uh, and you can We'll just walk through this thing. Um, Police get a 911 call that there is someone who has died and there's blood all over the scene, so it's very clearly something that someone like you, a homicide detective, needs to be involved in. Who decides, first of all, that you are going to be the guy who gets to do this or is assigned to this as opposed to anybody else in your department?
4: So first of all, Scott, we have to determine uh, what, what we have, uh, and let's just kind of fast forward and suggest that it, it is confirmed it's a homicide um you know there's an obvious signs of trauma and death so uh, normally uh, first response uh, frontline officers will respond they would in fact call supervisor decisions are made and then our office uh, would be called uh the call would go to one of the uh staff sergeants or detective sergeants um to my knowledge i've been out of the game a bit but there's usually a uh, Uh, three uh, detective sergeants in homicide, and uh, then they make the decision who's going to be coming in and how many people uh, are going to be required. So that's the starting point there.
1: And what would they typically say when they call you? If you're the guy chosen, what would they typically say? Just very simply, we've got a homicide, we need you at point X?
4: Yep. Well, we usually come right into the office. So the most important thing, obviously, is the scene has to be controlled. The frontline officers are all trained uh, to do that. So everything gets locked down uh, for preservation of evidence, obviously. Um, and then everything kind of just goes into uh, a holding pattern. As much as we want to solve things uh, right away, uh, what traditionally happens, any officer uh, that if it's, if it's off hours or on hours doesn't matter. We're called into the office. Uh, a team is set up. We decide, and what what it's called under the major case management system is we form a, an investigative triangle. So basically, the staff sergeant or de- detective sergeant assigned becomes the uh, case manager, and then one detective is assigned as the primary investigator, and another. Uh, detective is assigned as what's called the file coordinator. And what the file coordinator is is someone that gathers all the evidence, organizes it, and then we decide once the information comes in, we determine where we have to go with the investigation. So they have a very important role. The primary investigator is really the hands-on officer, but they, they basically work as a, as a team. And then we get assistance from everywhere else. The other homicide detectives that are available, they all take certain roles. Um, And then, of course, we have to call in our uh, forensic officers. They become an important part of the investigation. We get a hold of the coroner who will be uh, going to the scene, usually goes to the scene. um, Cause of death or death is uh, pronounced. And then uh, the body or bodies are preserved and taken to the morgue.
1: Rick, as you're driving there though, as you're making your way to the scene at the very beginning because there's no homicide detective who gets that job on their first day. You've seen stuff over your career. but nonetheless, when you know that you're going to a scene where there is a body or another or bodies, do you still have to kind of prepare yourself mentally for what you're going to see or, or are you you so used to stuff now that it it's just work?
4: Yeah, I, to me it, it's it's not what you you know it's never very nice to see uh, trauma. But over time, I think for me personally, w- whenever I was thinking when I was getting called in is you start uh, trying to put the case together in your mind, uh, the the area it's taken place, what little information you have. And then you just kind of go through your mind what's going to be required, who's going to be doing what. Um, that's more how I look at it. Um, your mind goes into that investigative role. Um, so... Yeah, and then what happens when we get together in the office? Uh, we have a, we have a, we have what's called case meetings, and they happen all the time. They're very important. So traditionally, what happens is the first officer of the scene will be relieved uh, from the scene, and they'll come in and give a detailed briefing as to what took place. And then that's uh, then we get then we're on the roll, and that's when the investigation goes into high gear.
1: What percentage of the time? Because I know I mean there's something that. Um we always hear that the, you know, the police are canvassing the area. That's a standard line that we would hear in a media report after any kind of case like this. What percent of the time does someone in the area actually have something that they can offer that's a really good idea that, man, it's, look, beautiful. We actually have someone or some concept of what's going on really quickly. Does that happen often? It
4: happens pretty well every case. Uh, canvassing is a very, very important function of the investigation. Uh, people, for whatever reasons, and we have to respect those reasons, don't always come forward to the police. Sometimes it's just out of ignorance. They, they're not aware of what actually took place, but they may have seen something. And uh, for us, that's where it becomes very important to basically uh, we lock down the area and then we go door to door. Um, and I would have to say that there's always something that helpful will come out of that canvas.
1: Uh, so that's uh, a useful tool, not just a shot in the dark kind of thing.
4: No, definitely. Uh, it's, 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 it's probably one of the least glamorous roles in, in a homicide, but it's probably one of the most important.
1: Before we move on, is there, and I, I don't know if police watch police shows, uh, but is there a police show that you've ever seen that actually does a reasonably decent job of showing this before we carry on or are they all just so hollywood eyes that you really don't get much from any of them as far as realist realism goes
4: well realism i mean the stories are real um i wish in in, in my time there that uh, we could get the paperwork done in an hour like <laughs> they do <laughs>
1: yeah yeah uh,
4: it, it just doesn't we 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 get to go for a beer after you know uh, one day <laughs> Uh, Normally, uh, we're there for at least 24 hours, um, you know, and uh, the coffee gets pretty old after a while. Um, What I will say, if you're talking about uh, realism, uh, I'd have to say 48 hours is probably as close as you're going to get, because it is a realistic show. Mm -hmm. Um, And the bottom line is that that 48 hours is is really a true... uh, measurement of how important um, it is to obtain as much evidence as you can in the first 24 to 48 hours. And the the sooner you get to witnesses that their memories are still fresh, the sooner you get as many people as you can, uh, collect as much evidence as you can, uh, the better chances you're going to solve that homicide um, sooner rather than later.
1: You mentioned about, the, about evidence and stuff, and it, it's true. It's not like in CSI, I don't believe, where you find a drop of blood and you can have the DNA back in 20 minutes because it was someone in the lab. So what, what sort of time frame is it that you're waiting for a lot of this stuff? How long do you have to wait? If you found a drop of blood, how long do you have to wait to know whose that is?
4: Uh, I'm going to go back and say uh, in my time, um, again, the Centre of Forensic Science is based in Toronto, uh, very great people to work with. Um, they're well-respected in their field. Um, I, I'm thinking that sometimes it's a six week turnaround, wow. but yeah, but now again, if it's something that we can justify to them, uh, that we, we need it sooner then they, they there are, there are those rare occasions, but, uh, that, uh, particular type of evidence is does not come back quickly
1: and what would soon be if it was really fast if you believe that and i mean we're not talking about a specific but if it was a serial killer that you were investigating i mean and you said we, we got lives at risk here how fast could fast be that you might get something back uh,
4: again uh I, I don't want to go out on a limb too much but you know it might be a couple or three weeks but uh so
1: still not a, a couple hours that's that's no. the idea still not like we would see on tv where it's a couple hours to get this stuff
4: yeah and i and I think that's one thing is we talk about the c s i effect and it's 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 had a bit maybe a troubling effect sometimes with jury trousers because if they don't have that c s i effect they they feel that you know the person wasn't able you know we can't connect them but uh i'm gonna suggest that it's not always the most uh important piece of evidence in determining uh who committed the crime and whether we're going to make an arrest at that time it all Every piece I, I always think of uh, investigations, particularly major cases, such as homicides, um, like a jigsaw puzzle. And obviously, every piece of the puzzle uh, gets put together, and you know every puzzle looks great when it's when you have every piece. I'm going to suggest in any 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 major case, you probably will never have every single piece of the puzzle. But the more pieces you have, obviously, the better chances of re- are, you're going to have of success. And then, more importantly, just arresting somebody is one thing. But obviously, we're there to obviously present the evidence that will hopefully re- lead to a conviction in court.
1: How much—sorry, so, for for one of you guys, though, for a detective who's investigating this, how much pressure, as time is going on—because you're not getting the DNA or the blood back in hours— how much pressure are you feeling— from the public, from the media, from politicians, from police administration. I mean, do you, when you're on the street doing this, do you feel that?
4: Uh, I I think there's always that pressure. I think sometimes it's even the pressure amongst yourself. That you know, I think that um, to be if you want you want to be like any in any good uh, profession, if you want to be good at your profession, you, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to perform. At hopefully, the highest level, and I think you know, in areas uh, important like homicide and other investigative areas, um, there is that that self uh, pressure. I think more than anything, um, I think that it does get sensationalized um, on some of the TV shows that um, the you know the, the detectives doesn't have the media right in their face, so to speak, when they walk out of the the police station and, you know, things like that. I I think that there's always, I think that there's a lot of great support. I know in my time with uh, the Hamilton Police Service that there was usually a lot of great support and respect from management towards, um, you know, uh, towards these investigations. And, you know, they, they certainly gave us the time and space to do our job properly.
1: You mentioned earlier that with canvassing, but with other things, that you you would often get something out of that. How often, it, what percent roughly, and I mean, I know it's going to be a rough guess, but what percent is there that within short order, a name pops up of somebody, whether as a suspect or just someone that you really need to be talking to that might know something. How often does that happen?
4: Oh, I, I would say it, um, probably most homicides You've got people you're wanting to talk to fairly quickly. I mean, we don't have a lot of classic uh, whodunits in terms of the mystery case that we'll never, ever solve. I mean, I think that's one in maybe 100 or one in 500. Um, With social media now everywhere, cameras everywhere, Mm. uh, I I do believe that uh, the information gets to us uh, quicker um, and I think it's just the, that we've learned over, over time. Um, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that I was part of an era where, uh, there's a real stringent, uh, structure and how you, how you, uh, conduct these investigations. And I think it leads to a lot more success, particularly in Hamilton. I can't speak for other services, but I know the success rate in Hamilton is, is pretty good. Um, and I think it's a lot that has to do with the way we do these investigations.
1: So you get you get a name. You get someone early on in many of these, and you bring them into the interrogation room. And this is another part where uh, we all have a, a picture in our head of what happens in the interrogation room. You have the one light, and it's all smoky, and you get two inches from the guy's face, and spittle is flying and everything. I'm sure that's not exactly what it is. But what are you actually allowed to do in the interrogation room if you're a police officer? Uh, for example, can you bluff them about what kind of information or what kind of material you have, or even outright lie to them about what kind of evidence that you have to try and convince them to do something or to say something. What can you do or what can you not do?
4: Well, obviously, uh, so we're, let's assume that this is, a, this is a person that's been arrested. So they are um, been advised of the arrest. They're, um, they're given their right to consult with a lawyer. And we obviously, uh, we encourage that. And actually, case law uh, under the Criminal Code of Canada um, indicates that they have to have their lawyer of choice. So one of the things is that um, just because we can't get a hold of their lawyer right away, uh, we do have Ontario League Legal Aid, which will give them uh, legal assistance. It's a one eight hundred number, so we do provide that with the, uh, for the uh, the uh, suspect. Um, but again, it, the preferable situation is that they talk to their lawyer of choice. Now, once that happens, and we we obviously have to respect that uh, that conversation is uh, privileged. Um, they don't have to talk to us, but we have the right to talk to them. So. Uh I've had cases where a suspect or an accused actually didn't did not say anything through the whole interrogation. That was one I only had that happen one time. Um normally I would suggest a lot of times you're not gonna get an actual confession from somebody. But I think that what's really successful is just the fact that you get someone to speak to you and answer some of your questions. To Me, I consider that a uh, successful interrogation.
1: Is the is so, the is the traditional or the Hollywood good cop bad cop? Is that a real thing?
4: Uh, no, I don't think. Now, my, I. Uh, it's funny that you mention this because this is really my area of uh, interest, especially when I was in homicide, was uh, interrogation, interviewing and interrogation. So I certainly had my own style. It, it was very. Uh, Uh, organized in a sense and the the bottom line is you have to be prepared and the more uh prepared you are in terms of knowledge of the entire investigation but the better chance you're going to have of of success so sometimes uh you know knowing someone is involved early on can be can be beneficial because it's you know it, it it kind of takes away that public uh concern that the person's still out there. But on the other hand, uh, interrogating someone early on in the investigation may not be the best opportunity because we may not have all the information. And for example, when you mentioned the DNA, so, uh, you know, that's like a wait-and-see thing. So I've had cases where we've actually interviewed somebody. They were not necessarily considered a suspect at the time. But, in fact, they ended up turning in to be the accused. You know, they gave their story. They gave us a statement. They were free to leave. uh, And we continued the investigation, and slowly but surely more evidence comes in, and it starts pointing more and more at that person. Um, To get back to your other question, um, you know, again, the, the accused doesn't have to say anything. But, basically, what we do is we try to be patient. Uh, traditionally it's one person in the room, uh, and we have the other officers monitoring from another room because everything's videotaped now. Um, And we basically, we give them an opportunity to tell us what they know, and and let's let's suggest they don't want to say anything. Well, then we slowly but methodically present the evidence to them, and we give them an opportunity to respond.
1: And more often than not, do they eventually?
4: More often than not, they will say something. Again, most uh, people do not come out and out confess. Sure, but whatever they say is now part of the evidence. So we really like to lock them into a story because now when we go to court, are they going to stick? Is the evidence going to contradict their story, and and, and are they going to stick with that story in court? Um, To answer one of your other questions. Uh, Can we actually out and out lie to people? Uh, We have to, that's a very tricky road that um, we go down. It's, to me, it's not something that you want to get into a big practice uh, of doing. Uh, So, for example, say we have two people under arrest and we're interrogating both at the same time. You cannot go into the one accused and say that his buddy has. Um, you're now you're lying and saying that buddy's given it up Uh, you you can't do that it's just um, it's you know it's false and it's 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 not allowed Um, now you can make suggestions I always like the idea of suggesting to people and again in in today's uh, technology there's cameras everywhere so one of my favorite uh, questions I would put to people is okay um, you say you were not there that evening. If I was gonna to suggest to you that there's an image that looks exactly like you or looks very much like you, uh at that time, what would you say to that? And you know, even if the person still doesn't admit to it, their response based on my training will indicate to to me whether they're telling the truth or not. Hmm. You know. So there are there are a lot of uh investigative or you know, Techniques towards interrogating and interviewing that can be used, um, but the, the idea of of, uh, of putting out uh, lies is uh, you're going you're, you're really going down a uh, you know slippery slope there.
1: I wish we could keep doing this because this is uh, this is fascinating and maybe another time we will uh, we will do this again, pick it up because uh, Rick, I, this is uh, this is as I say really really interesting and a nice look behind the scenes, but. We are sadly out of time, but that is uh, Rick Arnold, retired homicide detective from Hamilton Police. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this.
4: Okay, Scott. You take care now. Uh,
1: fascinating stuff. I mean, especially because it's so not what you see on TV for the most part. It really isn't. That that last bit that he just described where you say, oh, your buddy just gave you up. How many times have you seen them on TV shows do that exact thing? And then the guy goes, okay, I did it. Well, that's not... Anyway fascinating stuff and sheds a little light on how well i mean hamilton police got a suspect and a second suspect named and one arrested one named within hours of this shooting and this homicide in town that's that's impressive that's good work fascinating to know how they did it you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from 7 to 9
0: on am 900 chml
1: Scott Radley Show, 900 CHML. Still searching for that perfect entry music for Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. That one, one, I don't know, did that one measure up, sir? Weak. (laughs) The gauntlet has been thrown down for Ben to find something better. Bubba O'Neill, as I say, CHCH Sports. Um, Wanted to bring you on today because um, we heard the news, I think it was earlier today, maybe yesterday, but in the last little while that... The Toronto Blue Jays may actually be up for sale. Rogers has kind of, it sounds like, put them on the block. If you uh, are someone with a billion and a half or $2 billion and you want to own a baseball team, do you think they're going to sell, though? You know, this has
5: created such a storm. And, of course, there's opinions flying all over the place. And, I, I mean, this is... We don't even know if this is... I mean, he, the, CEO, the CFO of Rogers basically just mentioned this in an interview with Bloomberg yesterday and everyone is running with it. So uh, obviously there's lots at stake with SportsNet as the televisor, who will get the rights. Everyone's got something to say. Do I think they're gonna do it? I think it makes financial sense to them.
1: Yeah, but who who is out there? That I guess the bigger question to me, even if Rogers wanted to do this, who you know, there's only one group that to me would make any sense whatsoever. That might actually be interested in doing this, and they happen to own an arena just down the road.
5: Well, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, yeah. absolutely, this would make sense for them, and to add to their growing giant, and basically, they would be in possession of uh, every major sports team in the in the city. And uh, I, you know, it's funny because you it'll be interesting to see what the asking price would be because when i look at the blue jays right now as a franchise and maybe it's the smart thing because financial wizards would tell you to buy low but the blue jays to me are on a downward slide right now I shouldn't say slide, maybe a cycle right now, because they had the two visits at the American League Championship game. Interest was at an all-time high for the last couple of years, and then this year there was a slide, there was a drop-off as the team has lost some players. Uh, some players have certainly gotten older. And I, I, under this management, this current management, I think the team is rebuilding right now. They just certainly have some prospects. Uh, down the line coming, but they're at least three ways, three years away from competing. So, what will the asking price be, and would it be worth Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment to to to, to dig a deal? Because so from what I've read, and I found this really interesting, Scott, the Blue Jays only represent three percent of revenue made for Rogers right now. That's minuscule for yep, a giant. For a, sure it is. A, a, a giant um, communications corporation like. Uh, Rogers, and you know, with salaries on the increase and a declining, possibly a declining amount of interest on their television network and, at, and in terms of attendance, I, I don't know. Do you buy a, is, is buying a team, other than maybe the Maple Leafs, going to make you money or lose you money?
1: Well, and if you're the Maple Leafs though, so first of all, Forbes last year uh, said that the Blue Jays were worth $1.3 billion. I think that was the number they attached to it. And pretty much every team that Forbes has valued recently has sold for way more than what the valuation was that was given. So let's even say $1.5 billion that it would cost you to buy the Jays. But there's another catch that comes with this, and that is the stadium in which they play apparently needs somewhere between two and $500 million in upgrades. So now you're talking about maybe this is now a $2 billion investment and the blue jay salary this year was 165 million give or take so you start talking about a 2 billion dollar capital investment followed by almost 200 million dollars a year in rising salary costs how do you make that money back
5: and, and that's the thing. I mean, your team has to be a winner. And the only way I think you can make that back, at least partially, is through television revenue. And that's obviously through ad revenue. And as all we all know here at CHCA, need CTV, everywhere, national advertising has gone down. And TV stations are just not making the type of money that they have, you know, like they used to over you know, 10, 20 years ago. The only saving grace is this is that, to me, on television, the lone product on television that's not going to be affected, I would say, by Netflix, how many people have Netflix or how many people don't have cable, there's still a need and a want for live sports. So I would believe with the two national sports uh, you know, networks in this country, we've already seen in a situation with Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment where, for the most part, the Maple Leafs, the Raptors are being divided between Sportsnet and TSN in terms of who gets what. So that'll be real interesting to see what happens in that situation with TSN. With, you know, because TSN's big product in the summer is Canadian Football League, and Rogers Sportsnet, it's the Blue Jays. So who gets what? If, if, if this were to happen, who would get what would be, I think, the most interesting thing.
1: Again, I just look at this and I think I'm not sure if I'm Maple Leaf Sports and I, and I don't know I mean I'm sure there are other people out there who are billionaires. I mean, I suppose that um uh you know, uh, Thompson or you know, some of these people there's there are other sure. people out there who I suppose could do this if they really wanted to. Mm-hmm. There's just not very many of them. And then as you say, you get into the broadcasting and everything else and boy, the one time we've seen in the last 20 years the true super value of the blue jays was in 15 and 16 when they were a great team that year in 15 when they traded for david price and troy Tulowitzki and all those guys and went on that run and you were getting a million people plus every game tuning in that's where you saw real value but i don't know if in a i don't know if you can do that every year
5: well oddly enough and i actually did look at the numbers scott that's what started it but the real money being made actually for the blue jays was the year after, and even more so this year. There were so many pre-sold tickets, and and, and they actually made a huge spike in terms of the entire Major League Baseball in uh, merchandise. Uh, so that, yes, the the, the move I mean, they actually got to the AL Championship game. I guess lost to Kansas City. That when Anthopolis made that move, that created a, a great buzz. But the money and the pre sale and tickets for the next two years is where Rodgers has made significant funds. But with a team that is not going to be able to compete with the Red Sox and the Yankees at this stage, at least in my opinion, based on the current roster, there's nowhere to go but down for this franchise right now in terms of wins and losses. And that generally transports to eyes on television and butts in seats.
1: Well, and if you, and I think you're correct that because of that, you probably are buying a little bit low on this team right now relatively speaking uh, the, if this was if this team had gone up for sale in 2000 and the off season after 2015 when they'd had that enormous explosion of interest you say wow this team is look at the value of this team but even so you're maybe talking now about an extra 2 or 300 million dollars which if you're talking about a 2 billion dollar investment it's only you know it's a, it's a smallish number. I mean, not for you and I, frankly, but well, maybe <laughs> for you, I don't know what they pay at CHCH these days, but, um, but yeah, it's low, but it's not low, right? I mean, we're talking about, it's still going to be a massive amount of money. And here's where the problem comes for me, who becomes that owner? Because if it is someone that is part of the reason that they're talking about this now is that it's a publicly traded company, Rogers is, and they are obligated to the shareholders to. Create the best bottom line. If you get an owner who comes in, whether it's a company or an individual, and looks at this as a money maker, you start seeing this team squeezing and saving and scrimping. And then, who wants to watch the Blue Jays when they become the Kansas City Royals or the Tampa Bay Rays? I mean,
5: I just got to start that to stop you there. hasn't hasn't that happened already? Under uh, you know, and I'm not I'm not one of the guys that are in a um, hate Shapiro mode. But I think that teardown has already started.
1: It, yes, they did. And
5: the did, they, and, and the, uh, the trade, I think the up, I, think, I mean, I, I have no inside information here, but I think that Josh Donaldson, who's probably the most popular player and easily, you know, the team's all-star, I think he's going to get dealt.
1: I, I don't think you're wrong. I think that the fact that they spent $165 million on salary last year says it's hard to say they are scrimping. But you, certainly, yes, you're correct that there are signs and indications that things are going to be tightening, and so if you don't have a competitive team, it's not very uh, light. It's not very great to buy that team. But the second part is, you get an owner who comes in and decides this is a money making venture. What have you got then? What you need is someone to come in, and I don't know who this person is. You need someone to come in who goes, i got so much money, I can't spend it in a lifetime, but what I really want is to win a World Series, and I'll spend whatever money it takes to win that World Series. I just don't think there's many of those guys around, or women, frankly.
5: Well, yeah, and again, and I think the the underlining fact that the Jays are in the American League East is a big negative, I mean, to whoever looks at it, because you're looking at the money, That the Yankees and the Red Sox are spending, and with the exception of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who, you know, this year surpassed the $300 million payroll mark, which is the first time that's ever happened in professional sports. You need to spend money if you're going to attempt to compete and attempt to show your fan base that you are trying to compete and stay with these big dogs. Because anything short of a wild card, I don't think the American League Championship is available for the Blue Jays, again, for the next, you know, at least four to five years.
1: And look what what just happened in Florida. Because Derek Jeter... One of the all-time greats, they say, anyway, in, in Major it. League baseball. <laughs> But he just bought into the Miami Marlins, and everyone's thinking, oh, this is great. We got Derek Jeter involved. And what are they doing? It's a full-on yard sale. Anything we can get rid of to save money, that's what they're doing. They're going to trade away their best player for parts. And you're looking at this team now, and if I'm a a fan in Miami, I'm saying, well, wait a second, Um, this is not exactly what I was hoping for when we had new ownership.
5: Yeah, but I mean, but again, these guys aren't in the business of losing money. Exactly. Because this is a team, I mean, the Marlins with uh, Giancarlo Stanton, who, you know, along with Joey Votto, are, are the best players in the National League. I mean, you have this gem of a player. Why are you paying him three hundred million dollars when t- with a team that can never win? And this is you know translate that into Toronto. You have a Josh Donaldson who are you know is in his young thirties, I think thirty one years old, possible All Star player, maybe beginning to break down a little bit in terms of his ability to play one hundred and sixty two games every season. Their injuries have certainly crept up with him. Uh, what do you? What, and he's coming up for a big co- payday. Why would you pay him? But you've got two options.
1: You've got two options if you're in that circumstance, like the Marlins or like the Jays. And that is, you say, we've got these guys that we could build around. We're going to have to add some salary, but we can really be a great team. Or you say, I don't want to add salary. And so it seems worthless to spend all this money on someone who's not going to get us into a championship position. So let's dump everything. And I, I just don't see that person. In Toronto, in the Toronto market, unless there's someone out there who really is not even from here, but really wants to own a team, I just don't see that person who says, "Yeah, you know what? Let's go to the 230 million dollar salary market." I I just, I don't know who that person is. I don't see that person out there. No way. It Uh, just. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe it'll be like Interbrew. (laughs) <laughs> oh Interbrew? yeah, Interbrew great yeah, fantastic. <laughs> oh, that would be delightful.
5: A Belgian uh, beer company that come in and you know and take over the Jays. but I mean it, it really is you know, I again, it will be to the highest bidder.
1: But that's the worst case scenario. If you're a fan and a nameless faceless international company comes in and makes an offer on this team, that to me you don't even have to know what their background is this is a move simply to squeeze every dime out of this company as a fan that's terrible terrible news you want if this thing actually does go anywhere you want a a, a company or a person with a name and a face attached to the front of it you want someone that you can then look at because if they're willing to put their face in front of it, I really believe then they are probably willing to be somewhat accountable and they want to not be wildly unpopular by just hacking and slashing.
5: Yeah, well, I I think at the end of the day, as much as that may that may be the dream situation, I think at the end of the day, making money over the long term will be the will be the goal of that of that ownership. I mean, because you're in the business of making money, not losing money. And if you're looking at your roster, and I mean, you're going to be trusting your 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 uh, executives in and, and, and Shapiro and, and your general manager and Atkins, and when you look at that roster, and, but you full know that you've got some prospects in Guerrero and a couple other guys that are coming through the loop, maybe if some creative deals are made for some prospects, that really you're not going to win for the next four to three to four years, three to five years, um, the, you're, you're going to buy the team. And you're going to have to find a way to te- to you know talk to Canadian baseball fans and preach
1: patience because that's the only way this is going to happen. I just wonder if Magic Johnson has any family in Toronto because <laughs> he seems to come in. He came into L. A. and ah, they're spending. They don't even care what they spend. You need another billion? Ah, sure, another. What's a billion among friends? Sure. Who do you need? It's I don't amazing. Think that's... They they have no fear of paying the luxury tax. They do not. They do not. Uh, Bubba O'Neill, appreciate it. We will come up with a better entry song for you eventually. I promise keep trying. We will. Bob O'Neill, CHCH, (laughs) thanks for doing this, sir. Always a pleasure. The
0: Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.